Amen. Amen. Thank you so, so much. Good morning, Grace Monroe, 11 a.m. service. Woo! They did tell me that the 11 a.m. service is more lively, so let's see if they're right. <laughs> well, good morning. My name is Olu Akinwande. Um, recently, I am the community life pastor at Grace Capital City in Washington, D.C. And so if you're new to Grace Monroe or new to Grace in general, Grace Monroe is a part of a family of churches um, of which I am a part of. And so my beautiful wife of five years and my three years old but five year tall <laughs> daughter greets you all from the nation's capital. I miss them so dearly, and I'm excited to go back home to see them. Are you all ready for the word this morning? Let's go. How, how has the book of the Minor Prophets, the book of the Twelve, been? How many of you all just love to read the Minor Prophets? <laughs> Anybody know where Nahum is? <laughs> well, I'm going to give you some time to find where Amos is. We're going to be in the book of Amos this morning. I, in particular, love the book of Amos. We're going to find that Amos is an angry farmer. Someone say angry. angry. He's very pissed. <laughs> He's pretty pissed. But I believe in the emotions and in the prophetic word that Amos has, he was speaking to Israel, but I believe that this prophet is also speaking to us today. So if you're there, I want you to shout justice. There we go. So let me pray for us. Father, I come before you just humbly. I ask that your spirit would move. I yield my mind, my emotions, my heart. And the words I'll be sharing to you, and I ask that you would anoint them afresh. I pray for folks in this room who are listening under the sound of my voice or who might be listening through a podcast. Father, I pray that your word would penetrate hearts, that your spirit would mobilize people to living restoratively in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and at their workplaces, and even in their schools. So Holy Spirit. Would you come in a fresh, fresh way? And the people of God said, amen. amen. So we have a discipleship issue. I want to quote, if, if you've taken um, Living Undivided, I heard there was a rumor of some individuals in this room who took Living Undivided. There was a particular quote that stuck out to me, and I want to read it for you all. He, he says, Robbie Jones, he's a doctor and founder of the Public Religion Institute, he went to Emory. He says this, we have a discipleship issue. If you're a white person, you do not go to church. You are 20 to 30 percent more likely to support racial justice movements. 20 percent to 30 percent more likely to believe Confederate monuments should come down. 20 to 30 percent more likely to believe that systemic racism exists than a white person who goes to church every Sunday. I came off strong, didn't I? 
Martin Luther King in the Birmingham jail, in the context of imprisonment and discomfort and maybe even some disillusionment, writes a letter to some pastors in the area. So he's writing from a place of discomfort. He says this, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, those are social issues of which the gospel has nothing to do with. Christians, to this day, are still asking the same question. What does justice have to do with the gospel? Rich Velatis, in his book titled Deeply Formed Life, says this. Many in our generation do not want to hear the good news, the gospel, the message, if this good news does not lead to a more just world. Let me repeat that. Many in this generation do not want to hear the message that we carry, the message that saved us, redeemed us, restored us. Many in this generation do not want to hear this message if this message does not lead to a more just world world. Can I define kingdom justice for us? Because justice has been hijacked by the polarization in our political environment. Fox News has hijacked it, and MS, you know, I don't, I, I don't even watch the news anymore, but MSNBC, I think, they both have hijacked this word justice. And so you might be in this room, and when you hear the word justice, something just jumps out at you. It might be irritated because of the hijacking of the word. The word justice, biblically and theologically, simply means this, making the wrong things in this world right. Let the church say amen. That's justice. That's kingdom justice, making the wrong things in this country, in this world, right. I recently stumbled upon some interesting uh, facts about the slave owner's Bible that they would give to slaves in this country. 90% of the entire Old Testament was removed. Five, only five out of 67 chapters of the minor prophets was included. And guess how much of the book of Amos was in this Bible? Zero. Could the reason we're still asking the same question, what does justice have to do with the gospel, be because our formation, our discipleship, has been shaped by a diminished Bible that resembles the slave Bible, the Bible that worked for oppression rather than the whole Bible, which includes the Old Testament, that's telos. Its narrative endpoint is actually justice. Another way to say this is this. Could the reason we're still asking the question that Martin Luther King posed, what does justice have to do with the gospel, is because we aren't reading the Old Testament. The reason why we tend to avoid the Old Testament is because it makes us uncomfortable. And specifically, the prophetic books they were written to challenge the status quo. And so because they challenge the status quo, they challenge us as well. 
And so we avoid things that make us uncomfortable. But what we're going to find in the book of Amos through the messenger, through the metaphor, and the message is that justice is not, uh, is not comfortable. If you don't leave with anything, I want you to leave with this. Justice is not comfortable. If you're able, I would love for you to flip to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7. And when you're there, I want you to shout, Justice! Justice. There we go. So while you're there, I'm going to give us some context. In Amos chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, The message was given to Amos. The word Amos, his name actually means burden bearer. It means to carry a load. And what is peculiar about prophets is that they carry a, a load that is twofold. The first load that, ber- that prophets carry is the one of deep compassion for people. I want you to remember that. Amos is angry, but his anger is not coming from a place of hate. It's coming from a place of tenderness. It's coming from a place of deep compassion. The other element that the prophets carry is that they have a deep empathy for God. And so it's twofold, compassion for people, deep empathy for God. So Amos is a burden bearer. In his identity, he's carrying a burden. It says that Amos was given a message. A shepherd from the town of Tekoya in Judah, he received this message in two visions in two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. So a bit of context, this book was written before the the Israelites were sent into captivity. The reason why they were sent into captivity is because they committed two evils. They didn't love God with all their heart through their idolatry, and they didn't love their neighbor as their self through injustice. And so the reason of the exile was to punish Israel for breaking this covenantal relationship with God. And so the prophets are communicating and speaking to the people of Israel to turn away from their wicked ways so that they wouldn't have to go into exile. And so the prophet, with compassion, he doesn't want to see his people enslaved, and so he's persuading, even in an anger tone, because he knows that the end is not going to be good if they keep disobeying. So Amos is from the southern kingdom. In that day, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two places. First, the kingdom of the southern kingdom of Judah, and then the second was the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos was a shepherd from the southern kingdom, and he's going to the north. And so Amos, as he's going to the north to preach and to critique, he has no political attachments or affiliations that would blind him from seeing injustice. You all know how like, you can swim in water for so long, and because you've been swimming in water for so long, you don't know it's actually toxic? Or if you've ever left your car on in your garage and you stay there, you can breathe that air and not even know that the, the air that you're breathing in, because it's so normal to you, it's actually toxic. 
And so Amos is coming from the southern kingdom, and because he wasn't in connection to the northern kingdom, he was able to see toxicity. He was able to see injustice clearly. There were also no relationships that he had, economic relationships that he had that would have deterred him or dissuaded him or prevented him from speaking truth to power. And so sometimes separation actually gives us clarity. I love how this church, people are going to Israel for epic. Epic means encounter people in context. Sometimes we have to step out of our context to go into another person's context in order for us to really understand reality. I love how this church has also participated in living undivided, where you're able to hear the narratives and the stories of people who are looking who who look and come from different backgrounds than you. Again, sometimes separation from what is normal allows us to see injustice clearly. You all at Amos chapter 7? Then Amaziah, someone say Amaziah. Oh, Amaziah. The priest of Bethel sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. Let's pause, because sometimes when we read the Bible, we we just read it without looking at what's actually happening. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, is accusing Amos of treason. That's a serious offense. Someone yell at me, what happens when someone is accused and guilty of treason? Death. So this is serious. What he is saying is intolerable, verse 11. He is saying Jeroboam will soon be killed and the people of Israel will be soon sent away into exile. Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. Get out of here, you prophets. Go back to the land of Judah. Remember, Amos is from the southern kingdom of Judah. And earn your living by prophesying there. Let me repeat that. Earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. It's interesting how Amaziah first mentions the king's sanctuary, and then secondly, he mentions the house of God or the place of worship. You can see his priorities, can't you? This is the king's sanctuary. Let me step on a little bit of toes today. It's funny how religious nationalism always tries to shut up the prophetic voice. Religious nationalism, another way to define it, is the intermingling of power and worship. The king's sanctuary and what? You all talk to me. What was there? The king's sanctuary and the place of worship. Not even just in this era, but also in the recent time periods. What happened to Martin Luther King? He was killed. Let's even just look at the times of the story of of Jesus. John, the prophet, he was beheaded by who? King Herod. He was beheaded. Jesus of Nazareth, the one that we follow, you know what he called Herod? He called him a fox. That's, that's, that's like foxes, we understand like, what is a fox? But imagine calling someone in a, a place of power something 
negative, critique. And guess what happened to Jesus? He was crucified. He was killed. He was assassinated. Again, it's funny how religious nationalism always tries to shut up the prophetic voice. And the way that it shuts it up is by killing. We'll just continue. Verse 14. But Amos replied, I love it. He's like, I'm not a professional prophet. Hey, guys, I'm not a professional prophet. And I was never trained to be one. I love this. I'm just a shepherd. And I take care of sycamore fig trees. Someone say proximity. So he's a farmer. Verse 15 says this. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me to go and prophesy to my people in Israel. So you all have to forgive me. I'm not from the south. I'm from the north. And so I have biases. So when I'm approaching this text, originally I thought farmers, all farmers, were of the lower socioeconomic status. So I'm reading this. and I'm like, okay, it makes sense why Amos would preach about justice is because he's also poor. But many scholars and theologians would argue that Amos was a sheep slash cattle herder. And in those time periods, this, these people, this occupation was one of a lot of wealth. So Amos wasn't poor. He was wealthy. He was a large owner of a number of sheep and a steward of land. And so Amos was coming out of the southern kingdom of Israel. He was coming out of comfort. He was coming out of security. He was coming out of his own livelihood of wealth. And he was going to preach to the north. So that tells me that Amos's solidarity or Amos's relationship with justice did not derive from his social economic status, but it was based off of his proximity and calling. Let me go there. Justice is not a black person issue. Justice is not a Spanish or a Latino person's issue. Justice is not an immigrant issue. Justice is a kingdom of God issue. Justice is not a liberal agenda. Justice is the kingdom of God. Let me put it this way. If you're called to love, you are also called to justice. Because justice is what love looks like on the public. And so justice is not solely for the poor and the oppressed. Justice is for every single person who is called to follow Jesus Christ. Let me say this. Justice is not an optional elective that we can opt in or opt out of. Justice is the core it is core to the gospel. Again, people in this generation do not want to hear about our good news if our good news does not lead to a more just world. And so Amos' passion for justice wasn't from his social economic status. It was from proximity. Remember, he was, a, he was tending to the sycamore trees. I want to ask you a question. Who are you proximate to? If the reason why you're not passionate about the restoration of all things or justice, I want to ask you, who's around your table? Who do you invite to your table? Because to love your neighbor, you actually have to have neighbors. <laughs> right? But if your neighbors look like you, 
have the same status as you, it can make sense why loving your neighbor would only skew and leave out justice. I want to challenge some of us today. Who do we break bread with? Who are we proximate to? Who are we inviting into our homes? Where do our kids go to school? Who are our friends? Who are you proximate to? Because Amos was proximate to farmers, therefore he was able to get in and empathize and understand what was at stake for them, what was disadvantaging them, what was oppressing them because he had a relationship with his neighbors. But he was also called. I love how it says, but the Lord. Someone say, but the Lord. But the Lord called me out. Amaziah was a paid priest. So you can see how he's projecting his economic rationale on Amos. He's saying, hey, go back to your land and go make money by preaching there. So he's projecting his economic rationalization of what it means to be a man or woman of God. He's projecting it on Amos. He's a paid priest. He's getting paid by Bethel, the, the, the kingdom of northern Israel. Can I be a bit vulnerable? As a preacher... Because I get paid by the church, there is a strong temptation to not speak truth. Why? Because if I speak truth, tithing would go down. If I speak truth, people will leave. Donors will leave. So as a minister, I'm looking at Amaziah and I'm like, there's a temptation for me to be just like Amaziah to even shut up people who challenge the status quo of how we do church. But then Amos, he's unpaid. He's an unpaid, unprofessional prophet. He was like, hey, I didn't go to seminary, guys. God just called me up here. I'm, I'm just speaking. I, I love prophets. They can't help but speak truth. It's just them. Jeremiah says, they're, they're the word of God is like a fire shut up in my bones. I can't help but speak truth. God has called me. And so Amos, because he's from the southern kingdom of Israel, one, and also because he was coming from a place of wealth, he was free from the entanglements of status, power, and money. And that actually empowered him to preach and critique the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Israel at large without restraint. So God called Amos out of comfort, out of his livelihood, out of wealth to go to the northern kingdom for the sake of the powerless. I want to say this. The pursuit of justice is always beyond the realm of comfort. The pursuit of justice is always beyond the realm of comfort. In my story... It's a bit similar to Amos, so I have a personal resonance with this story. It's only the opposite. I came from the north to come to the south. <laughs> Amos came from the south to go to the north. But the last 18 months, me and my wife, we left our corporate jobs. We left money. We left our, our home that we owned. We left our relationships. We were from PG County. PG County until, unfortunately, as of recently, was the most affluent African-American county in the nation. Now it got knocked off to our neighbor in Maryland. But 
I'm coming from this context of seeing people that look like me, of living in this bubble, and now God is calling me to go to the South for 18 months. To add on to that, me and my wife and my daughter, who is three years old but five years tall, we move into a basement. Someone say basement. That we, to people that we don't know, from a different cultural background than us. Someone say uncomfortable. 18 months, guys. It was a long time. And then to add on to that, God calls me to preach to predominantly white churches. And guess what he calls me to preach on often? Justice. Someone say, I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm uncomfortable. But again, the pursuit of justice is always beyond the realm of what? Comfort. But honestly, I'm an Enneagram 3, so if you don't know what an Enneagram 3, we're just chameleons. We just fit in. Our greatest fear is rejection. And so we don't like confrontation. I don't like, I'm very diplomatic. You know, when I was in my professional world as a consultant, we would come in into companies and we, you know, we have to sandwich things, right? Affirmation, truth, affirmation. Not saying the affirmation wasn't true, but they needed to hear the truth, right? And so I'm diplomatic. I don't really like confrontation because I'm afraid of rejection. I wonder, as it relates to justice, do we fear rejection of men more than we fear God? Do we fear the rejection of our neighbors? Do we fear the rejection of our family? Do we fear the rejection of the society when we stand for God's truth? Do we fear rejection of men more than we fear God? Because the reason why we don't like the topic of justice isn't because we just don't like justice. It's because we fear people and people's opinions. Proverbs has something interesting. The opinions of men is a snare. It's a trap. But the one who trusts in the Lord finds safety, finds refuge. But for me, as I reflect on my story, so we surrendered the house that we own. We surrendered, we still own it, we still move back, but we surrendered that for a season, the comfort of a three-story home that we own to move into a one-story basement and as not, I'm a Nigerian, so if you don't know Nigerians, we um, like to cook big meals. So we had a kitchenette, not a kitchen. Someone say uncomfortable. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't, a Nigerian who cooks big meals can't cook big meals in a kitchenette, right? <laughs> small, uh, for those who don't know what a kitchenette is, it's a small kitchen. It's not in a kitchen, really. It's a room with a stove, an electric stove. That plugs in. Someone say uncomfortable. (laughs) But, and and so we left also, I'm turning 30 in January. I'm a young guy, turning 30. I had ambitions of becoming Forbes 30 under 30. That dream is dead. (laughs) I went into ministry, baby. (laughs) But I had to surrender that the, 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 the American dream of up and to the right, of status, success, wealth. I surrendered those things. I surrendered luxury. I surrendered comfort. I surrendered achievement to move into a basement to preach to predominantly white churches. But one thing I've noticed is that when you surrender everything to follow God's will, 
You have nothing to lose when you speak God's word. Guys, ladies, beloved, women, men, children, here. I have nothing to lose to speak God's truth anymore. I've lost it all already. Again, when you surrender all, that's what it means to follow Jesus, right? Surrender everything. When you surrender all to follow God's will, you have nothing to lose. When you speak God's word, you have nothing to lose. I want to talk more so about the metaphor. So we, we, we've identified the message or the messenger of Amos. Justice is not comfortable. It wasn't comfortable for Amos himself. But now we're going to look at the metaphors. I want you all to flip to Amos chapter 6. Amos chapter 6. And I want you to pay attention to the words that speak to comfort and indulgence. Just pay attention. So you all are at Amos chapter 6. I'm going to read Amos chapter 5. Just listen in for a little bit and allow your imagination to take over. But pay attention to the words that speak to comfort and indulgence. Verse 10 of Amos chapter 5 says this, How you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Let me pause there. If you need a place in the Bible where there's systemic sin, it's right there. It's right there. You trample the poor, you steal their grains through taxes. Taxes is a systemic reality. Amen? You're stealing through the things set in place by power and unfair rent. Therefore, check this out, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellion. You oppress good people by taking bribes and depriving the poor of justice in the courts. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Verse 1 of chapter 6 of Amos, you all there? Again, pay attention to the words that speak to comfort and indulgence. Verse 1, what sorrow awaits you who lounge in luxury in Jerusalem and you who feel secure in Samaria? You are famous and popular in Israel and people go to you for help. Verse 3, you push away every thought of the coming disaster. We see in this text that they're living in denial in order to maintain comfort. They're, they're, they're pushing. They know in their hearts, they, they know that disaster is coming because of their disobedience. And so they're pushing it away because they want to maintain comfort. But your actions only bring the day of judgment closer. How terrible for you who sprawl or lounge on ivory beds and lounge on your couches, eating the meal of tender lambs from the flock and choice cows fattened in the stall. You sing trivial songs to the sound of the harp and fancy yourselves to the great musicians like David. Verse 16, I want you to lean in a little bit. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions. You care nothing about the ruin of your nation. In the text, we see comfort and luxury for the few. 
lead to the oppression of the many. I want to ask the question, how did they build the beautiful stone houses? How did they plant the lush vineyards? The answer is in verse 10 or verse 11. You trample the poor and you're stealing their grain through taxes and you're giving them unfair rent. That's what is fueling their luxury. That's what's fueling their opulence. Michael Coogan, a theologian at Harvard Divinity School, says this, the exploitation of the poor is perpetuated. Another word for perpetuated is, is fueling the wealthy elite. What's happening in this text is we're seeing the connection between the idolatry of comfort and the injustice of human beings. In our world, we also see this too play out, don't we? Compromising justice for the sake of profit and comfort leading to the oppression of people in this country and globally. Let me step on my toes a little bit. So I like clothes, I like fashion. But if you've heard about this concept called fast fashion, fast fashion is, a, is, is essentially uh, a systemic reality in which we purchase items for cheaper prices, but someone pays the price. The person who pays the price are people overseas. And so my comfort, my desire for luxury, my materialism, my consumerism is actually oppressing a neighbor that I don't see. But it's interesting that we're able to push these people to the side because they don't live in our country. They aren't our neighbors. Remember I said justice beckons us to be in proximity to people? That's why I love how this church moves out of its context because sometimes, again, it takes separation from the context that we've been living in to see the ways in which the world is actually unjust. And so I'm talking to myself. So that's the way that I am complicit. That's the way I am perpetuating oppression is because of my desire for fashion. Let me give you a statistic. I have family members, unfortunately, that have been incarcerated and I, I was struck by this statistic. $11 billion of revenue is produced by the criminal justice system, specifically prisons. Someone say $11 billion. Guess how much people who are incarcerated in jails who are performing these acts of service as a job, guess how much they get paid yearly? 11 to 52 cents. Can I add another layer? Historically, people of color, specifically African-Americans, are more incarcerated. They have a higher incarceration rate than people, white folk, just being honest. If that's not slavery, I don't know what is. $11 billion of revenue, and the workers are only getting 11, cent, 11 to 52 cents a year. So we see this in our world. Jamar Tinsby in his book, The Color of Compromise, says this. Historically speaking, when faced with a choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They chose comfort over constructive conflict, and in doing so, created and maintained a status quo of injustice. 
So because they chose, because we as the church, we chose comfort. We chose not wanting to step on people's toes. We chose not wanting to speak truth to power. We chose not wanting to wrestle feathers. We chose comfort. And because we chose comfort over courage, we have created and maintained the status quo of injustice in this world, in this country, in this nation. Are you all ready for the message of Amos? So the metaphor is this comfort, this opulence that's being fueled by the many, but fueled for the few. Here's the message. I'm going to read Amos chapter 2, if you can go there. Amos chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 6. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. Lean in. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. Pause. Originally, in the covenantal law, when someone would borrow something from someone, there's something called collateral. So in those days, they would give off their garments as collateral to ensure the debt, right? And so the Bible, God would command the people of Israel to give back those garments before nightfall because love of neighbor looks like if someone borrows you money, and you take their collateral, you don't want them also to be cold at night. So they were supposed to, at nightfall, return, even if they didn't pay back the debt, return the clothing back to the person who owes you money. But in this text, they didn't give it back at nightfall. They were lounging with that collateral. They were lounging with their neighbor's garments that would help them from being cold. They were lounging in it where? At church. Oppression was happening in church. It says, at their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. So if you want to find out what that means, go to Exodus 22, 26 on your own time. So they were disobeying God in that act, in the religious festivals. It says, in the house of their gods, their gods, their gods, plural, not singular, not in the house of our God, or the God, or Yahweh, their gods. So in this context, in this religiosity, idolatry was there. They drink wine bought with unjust fines. So the prophets are helping us see the connection between idolatry and injustice. They're helping us see the connection between the worship of God and the work of justice in this world. Let me talk to American Christians for a second. I'm talking to myself. We love justification, rightly relating with God, but we are uncomfortable with justice. We separate the two. When the Bible never meant to separate righteousness from justice, justification and, ju and justice, 
rightly relating with God and rightly relating with our neighbors. But we have separated it because loving our neighbor makes us uncomfortable. But justification, it makes us comfortable because our guilt, our shame, powerfully as it's so, is removed because of the cross of Jesus. But if you've noticed, with crosses, there's not just a vertical alignment or a vertical line going up, but what also is there as well? Horizontal. Could it be that Christians are only living in one half of the redemptive purposes of the cross and not the full, which looks like a vertical relationship of loving your neighbor as you love yourself? Isn't that what Jesus said the the commandments were? He says, the law and the prophets are summed up in this, including the book of Amos. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And what else? Love your neighbor. Not love your white neighbor. Not love your wealthy neighbor. It says love your what? Neighbor. All humans. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Israel is guilty of covenantal infidelity. They're, they're, they're living in idolatry in the place of worship, and they're oppressing people. They broke the law twice. I wonder if we're also, if we were to be honest, we might be guilty of the same as well. Worship of idols, the idol of comfort, luxury, opulence, success, achievement, oppressing humans in this country and in other countries globally. I wonder if we're also, if if this text would challenge us as well. Here's the message. Amos chapter 5 in the message version. You don't have to flip there. Amos chapter 5 in the message version, verse 21, says this. I can't stand your religious meetings. I understand why God can't stand their religious meetings. Because they're not worshiping him and they're oppressing their neighbor. It makes sense why, they, why God doesn't like their religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religious projects and your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. This is the message version. He's spicy. <laughs> He's very spicy. Habanero spicy. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Right? Because they were worshiping idols in the place of worship. Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's what I that's all that I want. NLT version says, God wants a mighty flood of justice, endless rivers of righteous living. Unadulterated religion and knowing God is summed up in this. Loving caring, supporting, advocating for the marginalized, the voiceless, and the discarded. James 1.27 says this, true spirituality that is pure in the eyes of our Father God is to make a difference in the life of orphans and widows in their troubles. So he's saying, he's defining what spirituality is. That's the essence. That's the goal of our Christian faith, right? Spirituality. James, New Testament, not Old Testament, New Testament. It's saying true spirituality isn't simply paying tithes, which you still should do, isn't simply reading your Bible, which you should do, 
isn't praying endless hours a day, which you still should do. James defines true spirituality as making a difference in those who are oppressed and marginalized, in those who are discounted, disadvantaged, and refusing to be corrupted by the world's values. James 22:16, very peculiar passage. It's the only passage where God himself defines what it means to know me. We go to church because we want to know who God is, don't we? That's the essence of our faith, to know God, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the fellowship of his suffering. The essence of our faith is knowing God. And there's only one text where God in first person defines what it means to know him. You all ready to hear it? Jeremiah 22, verse 16 says, he gave justice. Someone say justice. He gave justice and help to the poor and needy, and everything went well for him. Isn't that what it means to know me? The litmus test for knowing God is a heart after justice. The litmus test, based off the Bible, theologically, one who claims that they love God must love their neighbor. Isn't that John? First John? How can you love a God that you don't see if you don't love your neighbor that you do see? This text is defining what it means to know God. It's saying, hey, to know me means to give justice. So justice is not, again, an elective. It's core to knowing God. Matthew 25, what's interesting about that passage is it includes prisoners, orphans, widows, people who are hungry, people who are thirsty. And Jesus says something very peculiar. He says that when you gave to those who were thirsty, when you gave to those who were hungry, when you visited those who were imprisoned, you were doing this unto who? Jesus. To know God actually means to live a life. Of justice. So I want you to put the, the, the metaphor, the, the picture on the screen. So remember I said pay attention to the words of comfort and opulence? Y'all see a man in a toga. Have you guys ever been to a toga party? They're pretty gnarly. <laughs> see a man in a toga. He's eating grapes, lounging on ivory beds. We see a massive mansion. That's not an ancient Near Eastern mansion of the time of the prophet of Amos, that's current. You see, it's static. You see a bed. It's not moving. No one moves. It's, it's, it's about the complacent. The life is reserved for the self. Enjoyment. There's no movement towards progress. One is enjoying the laurels of the past. But we see in this text, and we also see in this picture on the left, comfort. All these images speak to comfort, and that's what the book of Amos is highlighting. I challenge you to read the book of Amos this week and just highlight all the words that speak to comfort and opulence and luxury. And we see this juxtaposition between the comfort of the few, and we also see the challenge, the juxtaposition of the metaphor of the challenge that God is inviting us, saying justice is like a flood. Righteousness is like a river. When you look at this, some of you are like, I do not want to do rafting on any of these waters, right? Because it's uncomfortable. 
It's active. It's dynamic. It's also destructive. You can see that elements that aren't supposed to be there will be destroyed if that river goes down that path. But one thing that you can notice is that it's progressive. It's constantly moving. It's not static. It's not staying still. It's releasing life as it goes. It's uncontrollable. But one thing it's not, it's not comfortable. I want to ask us a question today. Are we building a religious empire of comfort and luxury for the powerful, or are we flowing in the uncomfortable river of God's justice and righteousness? Where are we? Are we flowing with the river? Because it's uncomfortable. Justice was never meant to be comfortable. I want to invite the band back up. Justice is not comfortable. What's peculiar, Amos chapter 4, you know, Israel's sinning again and again, again and again, again and again. And in Amos chapter 4, verses 6 to 13, there's a pattern. I challenge you to read it. But the pattern is punishment because of continued disobedience. So you'll read it and you're like, oh man, will these people get it? They're punishing, they're, they're disobeying God, they're oppressing people, and then there's punishment. The following verse, they're disobeying God again, there's punishment. Disobeying God, punishment. It happens five times. And then Amos chapter 4, verse 12, at the end of that succession and that pattern, it says, therefore, thus will I do to you, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And so I'm reading the text, and I'm projecting my bad parenting flaws onto God. And so when you say, this is what I'm going to do to you, what does that mean, kids? <laughs> You're in trouble, right? Punishment is happening. But that's because I'm projecting my character flaws, my parenting issues onto a loving father. You might be hearing this message today, and you're like, Olu came in strong. But we find punishment never works, does it? Punishment never compelled us to the gospel. It also doesn't sustain us to live a life of holiness and justice. But I love how this passage says, prepare to meet your God. That word prepare is the same word used in the Old Testament for an encounter. An encounter with something divine. And you'll read afterwards, it talks about the majesty of God seen in creation. And so Abraham Herschel, who's a scholar on the Old Testament, says this. He says, castigation has failed, meaning punishment. It didn't work for Israel, but an encounter will save. God is coming to these people, not as the punisher, but, but as the restorer. In the midst of our injustice, because of mercy, God desires to meet with us. It's not divine punishment that transforms us. It's divine encounter that transforms us utterly. And so justice, because of our Western mindset, we think that justice is punitive. This person deserves justice, therefore they deserve what? Punishment. But that's not kingdom. Kingdom justice is always restorative. 
And so sometimes we think that in order for us to have justice, we need punishment. We need God to punish us. But what we actually need, what this text is actually communicating is we don't need punishment. We need presence. Someone say presence. We need the presence of God. It's presence that fuels and sustains the work of justice, not punishment. We saw that in 2020. People were punishing each other all on IG, Instagram, and Facebook, throwing darts, knives, punishing people because of their belief systems. And we see it didn't work. It created more division than unity. But what we actually need is presence. But also not just presence to God, presence to God to fuel us to having presence with our neighbor. Justice needs presence. It needs proximity. So I would love for you to stand if you're able. I love the Holy Spirit so much. Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as the comforter. And what enables us to do uncomfortable things is the presence of the comforter. Let me say that again. What enables us to have that difficult conversation with our neighbor, with our family member, what enables us to do the difficult thing of not buying into consumerism or materialism or fast fashion, what actually enables us, again, is not punishment, but it's presence. The presence of God helps us to do the work of justice restoratively in a healthy, holistic, sustainable way. And so what we need as a church in order to live into the mission of Grace Monroe to restore all things, we need the great restorer, don't we? We need the restorer to restore our own hearts, our own bodies, our own minds, to challenge the biases that prevent us from working out justice in this world. We need the presence of the Holy Spirit. But in my relationship, I've found something about prayer. The strength to stand in the face and to speak truth to power about injustice, that strength is not cultivated in yelling. It's not cultivated in angry arguments over an internet stranger. It's cultivated on your knees. The strength to stand is cultivated on your knees. And what's powerful about the knees is that if you stay there long enough, it gets uncomfortable, doesn't it? And so I noticed that we have these things here. (laughs) And so if the Holy Spirit is stirring something in your heart, I want to invite you to break bread and communion, which is a powerful symbol of not just rightly relating with God, but communion was also done in community as well. Communion was also done in ethnicity, in diversity. Communion resembles the breaking of bread. It it, it embodies the, 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 the delusion or the dissolvement of Separation between God and man, but also separation and barriers between God or humans and other humans. 
When we take communion, we're saying yes to unity with God, but we're also saying yes to unity with other people who are different than us. And so I would love to invite you to, if you feel stirred, to take communion with that in mind, of saying whatever barriers are on the inside of me that are preventing me from living justly, walking humbly, loving mercy, God, as I'm breaking this bread, I'm breaking those barriers in my own personal life. I'm breaking biases. I'm breaking negative thought processes. I'm breaking prejudice. I'm breaking these things because I need you and your presence to help me break those things. But I also want to invite you to pray on your knees and get uncomfortable because, again, justice is not comfortable. So, Holy Spirit, would you work even as we respond? Work in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen.